This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 27. We're recording on Thursday, November 7th. I'm Rebecca Shinsky, and I'm here with Jeff O'Neill, and we are the editors of BookRiot.com. Jeff, good morning. Good morning. You stayed up late, and I got up early, so we're meeting in the middle of tired. (laughs) We are. I I, I haven't done it in a while, but I stayed up way past my bedtime to finish a book. Oh, do you want to say, or do you want to... Sure. What what Uh, is it? It's The Martian by Andy Weir, which doesn't come out until, I think, February. Uh, It's a debut novel about um, a mission to Mars. Well, let me guess. It's about uh, Martians. No. Okay. Uh, this mission goes to Mars. It's set slightly in the future, but we don't know what year. It's like the third Mars mission. And uh, the astronauts get caught in a dust cloud, and one of them has a bad accident. It looks like he's dead. Uh, so his crewmates have to leave him when they evacuate Mars. But it turns out that he is not dead, and so he's got to survive on Mars by himself, uh, you know, just with the materials that are left there and the little shelter Mm. that they had intended for their 31-day mission uh, with no way to communicate with Earth until NASA figures out that he's not actually dead. Somebody spots him on Uh, a satellite. Okay. I mean, I like that. Yeah, it's great. It, it, It moves between his log of his days on Mars and how he's solving all these problems. It's like super geeky in a very MacGyver kind of way, but not, uh, you don't have to be a space nerd to understand the science. <laughs> it's laid out really well. The voice is great. This guy is like snarky and funny. And then we get the, the, the scenes, uh, down on earth with everybody trying to problem solve and figure out how they're going to bring him home. It was really terrific. I'm super excited about it. I, I've seen a bunch of our folks and people we know talking about that book so far. So I, I'm guessing that's going to be one to yeah, talk about a little bit That's later. one to look for uh, next year for sure. Yeah, you know, I'm just vamping because I don't want to talk about this first follow-up story. I know this one's uh, sad, man. Harper Lee is having a rough Man. Year. So in the ongoing saga of Harper Lee, I guess sort of getting her legal house in order recently, um, mm-hmm. we've talked on the show before about uh, wresting the rights to To Kill Mockingbird back from a, I'm going to put in nefarious, I'm going to say nefarious hangers on. Mm-hmm. Um, as, she, as her health has declined, um, I think her estate got away from her a little bit. But the next volley in this war, um, Harper Lee is suing. Is it suing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, a local museum in Monroeville, Alabama, of exploiting her literary fame. And uh, they're shocked. They're, they're they shocked. They are. Yeah, it's, you know, Harper Lee grew up in Monroeville. Uh, It served, the town served as the inspiration for To Kill a Mockingbird. I don't think anyone really knows what to think of this. Harper Lee is 87. Uh, this, This article that we'll link to in the show notes notes that she's profoundly deaf and she's almost totally blind. Uh, and so she's and 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 she's a literary giant, and she's suing this you know sort of small nonprofit museum in mm-hmm. her small town. And it, it all of these legal disputes with Harper Lee feel a little bit shady. Yeah, uh, it says you know no one really knows whose decision this was to to bring the suit, but that it appears to involve Harper Lee's older sister Alice, who is a hundred and two. Yep. And a close associate, an attorney who happens to be married to a relative of Truman Capote. So the, the people, the people around Harper Lee perhaps are not advising her yeah. to do things that are in her own best interest. Um, well, I mean, it could be in her fiduciary best interest. Whether or not she actually cares about them that much is hard to say. I mean, basically it comes down to the, the museum um, is in a restored courthouse that is you know, the setting really of where To to Kill a Mockingbird takes place. Um, And they offer tours and they get, uh, let's say, the story says they get about 30,000 visitors a year Mm -hmm. that come through there. Um, And that they do sell in the gift shop some To Kill a Mockingbird branded merchandise, which, well, you know, that's a trademark problem. They should be kicking back some of that to the Harper Lee estate. That's not a problem. But it sounds like the lawsuit wants them to stop sort of advertising the courthouse as being the place that To Kill a Mockingbird is based on and whether or not they do that. And just the, the, the Harper Lee estate just filed a trademark application in August of this year related mm-hmm. to it somehow. So they're gearing up for this. 
it looks to me that someone who um, has Harper Lee's power of attorney or is her, you know, estate agent or something is up to uh, squeeze every dollar they can out of the estate. That's what it looks right, like. That's what it looks like to me. That's what it looks like to me too. And it, it notes here that the gift shop of this museum makes twenty eight thousand yeah. dollars a year. So if um, they gave and, them twenty percent, it'd be five grand a year, right? Yeah, I mean, and that that's you know barely covering what they call in the mm-hmm. article a paltry paid small staff. Um, like it, it's a nonprofit organization. Yeah. They can't be making that much money off of right. it and maintaining their nonprofit designation. This, it just feels icky. I'm really sad that it's sad that Harper Lee, you know, is, is aging and that we're going to lose this at, at some point in the relatively near future, this, you know, huge figure in American literature, but I hate that she's going to go out this way. I hope that this is that there yeah. will be a happier end. To I the hope story the story than, is eventually that there was some guy that, was a little too big for his britches and dealing with this stuff. And it turned out it was not, none of it was her. Cause I think legally they, they may have some ground to stand on in terms of royalties, but it just seems so petty and ungenerous and, you know, it's people want the museum and they want to go there and okay, if they need to kick back some of the money for the mugs with a cover of To Kill a Mockingbird, whatever, I, I'm not a problem with that, but shutting it down or trying to give them a hard time. I mean, come on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not great. Let's All right, move on. Let's get let's out of here. Let's do happier. a sponsor. This is, okay, let's do a sponsor, a returning sponsor, Swoon Reads. Uh, Swoon Reads is a new crowdsourced romance imprint dedicated to publishing books that capture the intensity and passion of teen love. So basically, you get undiscovered writers and avid romance fans all coming together on the site um, to make books they love a reality. So it's not just we're going to publish more books and here you buy it. Basically, Swoon Reads is a community of people who love romance, um, both readers and writers, and that both readers and writers work on every step of making a book happen, from the initial discovery of a manuscript to readers can give editorial notes and design covers and then helping spread the words about these finished books. So if you're someone who's interested in writing uh, romance and reading romance and that super, you're super into it. I know there's a lot of you out there. You should check this out. It's swoonreads.com and their tagline is falling in love. Oh, excuse me. Fall in love with falling in love, which is just a very, very nice, uh, little tagline. So yeah, it's great. Romance readers I know are passionate about their, um, favorite writers and their favorite stories. Um, and this is a place that you can take some of that interest and excitement and, uh, maybe work with some authors and make something cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think definitely check it out, if, uh, particularly if you're interested in the, the behind-the-scenes work yeah. of getting getting a romance novel made. As a reader, it's interesting to, to poke around at swoonreads.com and see the manuscripts that are up there, the kinds of commentary that readers are offering, and also interesting to see how the writers respond to uh, yeah. that criticism. It's, it's a very cool thing, and uh, Macmillan... Publishing yeah, group. not a fly-by-night uh, organization. Yeah, here. it's yeah. behind this Macmillan's uh, Children's Publishing Division, and uh, these folks know what they're doing. The site is—it's beautiful. It's and a it's nice slick, and site. It's a cool. I think this is a cool idea. Yeah. Um, okay. Amazon's had a big week, Jeff. Yeah, another big week from the big boys in Seattle. Um, well, well, we what, talked. What, hmm. Follow up we, first before we get to yeah, the, the let, cleanup yeah, hitter. Let's do the, just the quick follow yeah. up. Um, we talked last week and waved all kinds of Muppet arms about the FAA uh, finally allowing the use of electronic devices during takeoff and landing. And Amazon being uh, as wily as Amazon is earlier this week offered a one day sale on uh, Kindle devices. I believe it was 15% mm-hmm. off all Kindle devices in celebration nice. of that sort Smart. of a, you are, you are now free to roam about your e-reader. Yeah. Um, and last time we said we weren't sure when this was going to go into effect, but it is in effect. So depending on the airline, they can let you, um, uh, read. So I know United now, most of their mm-hmm. flights, you can use your e-reader. I think maybe Delta still isn't active just from what I'm seeing on, on Twitter and other places uh, about it. But, uh, you know, check with your airline um, as you're getting on the plane and see if they'll let you. <laughs> we should be maintaining a list of reader-friendly airlines. Yeah, right. The, the wall of shame if you can't read your uh, nook while you're taking off. Okay. Um, so the, Oh, boy. Oh, here we go. Um so Amazon this week, in probably one of the more stunning acts of hubris, even for Amazon, <laughs> uh, 
started a new program called uh, Amazon Linen. That's what it is. It's called something like that. I uh, thought it was Amazon Source. Source. Where did I get linen? I have Boy, no idea. That's a, that's a, that's a, don't tell my therapist. That's a weird one. Um, <laughs> Amazon Source, where basically... <laughs> <laughs> we just have, do we have to, you need to recover? Do you need to take a walk, drink water? Just, What's going on? I'm just yeah, okay. WTF, right. man. Uh, I know, I know, I don't know. Uh, where basically, if you're an independent bookstore, Amazon is extending to you a very generous offer of uh, giving you the option of selling Kindles in your, in, in your, in your independent bookstore uh, at a discount so you make some money off of it, and you get an ongoing percentage of the purchases um, made on those devices. So someone walks in and buys a new Kindle Fire HD X.48, whatever is the newest one, came out yesterday. <laughs> um, and then that reader, you know, it's that their new account, that Kindle is tied to your um, bookstore. They go off and buy $1,000 worth of books. Over the next uh, two, two years, years um, you get $100. Um, and I would say that the reaction hasn't been super positive from independent bookstores. Shocking. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it has not been uh, super positive. I, I was wondering aloud on Twitter yesterday, you know, the, I, I figured we would see a lot of independent bookstores just saying, absolutely no way. There is no way we'll ever yeah. be in bed with Amazon. And, you know, indies certainly have good reason for that. But I was wondering, like, does this make financial sense? Indies won't do it, but should they? <sighs> well, um, yeah, and I, we both have questions. So that's your first one. I mean, aside from the cultural war situation yeah. is there a case in which an independent bookstore might maybe shoulda coulda woulda mm -hmm. <sighs> well know, i mean well mm. i heard from several booksellers behind the scenes oh. uh who who said no it doesn't make financial yeah. sense that the the royalties that um, indies are getting now from kobo are significantly higher than what they would be getting from amazon but also you know selling devices and selling ebooks is it's going to be a while before that becomes a profit center for independent bookstores. Mm -hmm. um, Ebooks need to take over more of the book market before that happens. Yeah. Um, the other piece of this, so the, I mean, that's interesting to know. Right. Uh, there's a couple other pieces. One of them is I w that I think a lot of readers, like Amazon, knows this is a good PR move, if yep. nothing else, toward uh, toward typical readers who don't work in the industry, who just want the books that they that they want to read. They want to read on the devices that they like the most, that they feel the most comfortable with. Whatever you know, there are a lot of re uh, reasons that, as a reader, you might really love and enjoy Amazon. And Amazon knows that uh, since they rolled out the Kindle, indie booksellers have been facing customers who come in and who look at books or who ask for something that's not there. And when it's offered for it to be ordered, they say, no, I'll just go home and get it on my Kindle. So this could solve a customer interaction problem yeah. where if Kindles were available, if the Kindle book was available, uh, the indie bookseller would be able to get a kickback of that purchase uh it's a thing that readers might think is cool like i can mm -hmm. support my indie books at my indie bookstore and read on a kindle if the kindle is the device that you want to read on um it might be about more than that i was looking at the press release and and it doesn't just say indie booksellers like they used indie booksellers as i saw the, that too as the headline but it's it also indicates small businesses so i think maybe what amazon's really going for here is to get kindles into stores that don't typically sell e-readers but that might sell books. yeah i think so too i mean i was wondering if amazon was really expecting did they really think uh, uh, more than a handful of indie bookstores might actually do this or is this just a pr thing where look what we're doing we take a lot of heat but we're giving indie booksellers a chance to get on the train. And if they don't, well, we tried. Um, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. there's kind of like we offered an olive branch that we can work together and blah, blah, blah. But it's sort of like <laughs> saying, you know, hey, Marie Antoinette, uh, I, I, we'll I sell you a guillotine. It'll just make things easier. It's a crafty way to get people to pay attention to this new program. But I, I suspect it's not really aimed at getting participation yeah. from indie booksellers. Amazon's got to know that. So far, I've only heard of two stores that are signing up to do it, and both are in Seattle. And mm. one has already had previous yeah. partnerships with Amazon in place. Uh, Seattle is where Amazon is based. Um, so they have relationships so you think that, maybe that like it's existing. for Walgreens or something? Yeah, I'm just or, or, or just you know, some like other a, like gift store, boutique, yeah, magazine store places, like, right? Yeah. That that might have paperbacks um, mm. in them. 
you know, like I don't think Hugs you can buy. News, right. Like I was just gonna say I don't think you like can that. buy. You, you can't buy devices in in airport bookstores. Um, yeah. But I or, can see how I mean, you might want to. It could be at Brookstones, to. you know, just places right. in malls um, yeah. trying to make it attractive to do it that way, too. So in our world, it's the, the indie bookstore phrase is the one that lit this particular fire. But mm-hmm. I think you're right in looking at a bigger picture. Um, and if I'm an independent bookstore, I don't do this. I don't do it. Even if it does make financial set in the short term, you know, I see it as a Trojan horse. You know, if oh, you're yeah. getting, you know, someone who maybe... You, you don't want to get Kindles into people's hands that wouldn't, wasn't going to look for them. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess if, there, if your readers were asking for it, maybe you could do this on the DL. I don't know how you do this. <laughs> like, you know, I'm a good, I'm a good, I'm a good um, regular print buyer, but, you know, my mom is going to want a Kindle and there's no way she's coming here. Can you sell me one and at least you'll get something out of it? Um, I don't know. That's pretty interesting way of... Uh, Sneaky under the table. Yeah, right. The gray market for Kindles. Um <laughs> Anyway, so that's that was the big. Though there wasn't really much discussion, it wasn't controversial, really. It was like, uh, no, <laughs> yeah, and that was sort of it. <laughs> when we tweeted it from Book Riot, it was like, this is a thing that is happening. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's it's just Amazon making a, another strategic move. Um, one analysis that I read noted that like uh, that Target stopped selling. Kindles ah. uh, that many, you know, many other big retailers have stopped selling Kindles because Target recognized that Amazon is a competitor of theirs for selling all the other things. Yep. Uh, and so why should they help Amazon sell their Kindle? And so Amazon's just, they're looking for more retail places to get Kindles into stores and, you know, into customers' hands. Yep. Now that the Kindle devices and, and tablets are about so much more than just reading books, uh, it, it makes sense to be expanding the market beyond bookstores. Well, I was thinking about that too, is that since Amazon basically competes with everybody, um, they don't have a lot of retail partners. Uh, right. I think Best Buy does sell Kindles, but um, tar- and I don't know that'll happen for much longer because they're fighting over the electronics market. But mm-hmm. Target has no reason to sell a Kindle um, because of the online retail. They want to have people, you know, they want to take money out of Amazon's pocket. Yeah. Walmart has no reason to do it. Right. Um, you know, all of these places really don't. So maybe they're trying to look for place stores that don't have an antagonistic relationship with Amazon, small businesses, chains, mall stores, people coming in and out anyway, um, that, that something could work. Because frankly, they're competing with Apple has the most beautiful retail stores in the business. Um, Best Buy is carrying everything uh, this side of the, the Atlantic. And then, you know, um, phone carriers, uh, they're carrying tablets increasingly. You can find an iPad there. You can get a new Google Nexus, whatever. Um, but they don't carry Kindles as part of their bundles. So it's where people are finding people when people where people are going to find tablets right now. Mm-hmm. They're not seeing physical Kindles, and it's, since it is a, a electronic device, most people I think like to see them first. Oh yeah, you I certainly have the petting do. Zoo moment. Yeah, you do want to have that. And the, Amazon has probably the most valuable retail real estate in the world, and that's the the Amazon.com homepage. But there is still a huge percentage of the population that wants to feel the thing in their hand um, and take a look at it. And they really don't have a good answer for that right now. Um, mm-hmm. So this might be a way of trying to figure out some ways of doing that. All right, let's do one more Amazon thing. Let's get off the green giant here for a second. Um, this is more insider baseball. So there's but it's a new, so funny. There's it's not just a, too funny not to talk yeah, about. Yeah, there's a new there's a new book out about Amazon, um, and it is called oh, I can't it's remember. called the Everything the Store. Everything Store. It's about the founding of Amazon, um, and. Because it's a book, of course, there's a page for it on Amazon, just like every other book. And uh, Jeff Bezos' wife, Mackenzie, uh, decided that it'd be a super good idea to go on and leave a one-star review of the book (laughs) um, and cite a long list of inaccuracies and uh, complaints and contradictions (laughs) and general um, grouching about the book. And this is just this is just such great <laughs> slag. I mean, it's, it's just, just great. such an amateur move. It just too. seems so small. Like, you know, the book, the Everything Store, got a good review in the Times. Um, yeah. um, Michiko Kakutani called it a dynamic portrait of the driven and demanding Mr. Bezos. Business Week gave it a whole cover story and like pulled out the the best bits of gossip and info. Like, if you are Mackenzie Bezos and you want to defend your husband, why not write? 
some sort of like letter to the editor to some to a big publication and dispute the factual bits like the way you're going to get your revenge here is to leave a one-star review on amazon like it's a it's a chump move i i think she probably sold this guy a bunch of copies Mm. Uh, i mean we're talking about the book and we wouldn't have Mm -hmm. otherwise uh, i don't think um though i did see that uh employee number two at amazon um i forget the guy's name but he you know someone decided to give him a ring about this whole thing and he said you know I thought it was pretty good. <laughs> you know, I thought it was, you know, like anything, there's some discrepancies and maybe seeing some things different ways, but um, he certainly wasn't uh, getting up on his hobby horse uh, yeah, and pounding that- this guy, Brad Stone, who wrote the Everything Store. But boy, it's just like a, it's just like a gravity well of <laughs> it, Amazon know, weirdness. It uh, is. And you know, several times a year, like on the inside baseball side of it, we see sort of on the book turnet blogosphere that like, that some author's husband or wife or some author's yeah. parent has gone on. Usually it's Amazon. Sometimes it's Goodreads to, to either defend or against Twitter. the negative reviews or to call, write or Twitter to call out people who have left negative reviews or, or, you know, like the author's mom is going around to all the blogs that leave right. negative reviews and leaving nasty comments on those blogs about like how they just don't understand. And it always comes out that this anonymous person is the person's husband or wife or mom or dad. And so I like, at least Mackenzie Bezos wasn't trying to be stealthy. Mm. <laughs> she, she left her own name here, but it's interesting also to me that maybe she believes that like a, a one review on Amazon is that powerful and important. Um, you know, we've talked before about do readers still pay attention to um, reviews on Amazon? Do they still care? Do they trust them since it's known that like a third of all online product reviews are faked? Um mm. Mackenzie Bezos either just was mad or she thinks they still matter enough that she thought leaving one uh, on this book, like anyone's going to trust her as a, an unbiased source of information. <laughs> Come on, know. man. I don't know. I mean, I understand your emotions get involved uh, in this, but I wonder what Jeff thinks of that. Was he like, you know what, I'm glad you did that. Or was he like, oh, come on. Here's like one of the things that she's disputing. Oh, I know. (laughs) It's so, I mean, this is the level of silly that this is, is uh, that the, in the book, uh, The Everything Store, he says that at the time Bezos was thinking about what to do next, he had recently finished reading the novel, uh, The Remains of the Day. <laughs> and Mackenzie Bezos wants us to know that is not true. Jeff didn't re- read Remains of the Day until a year after he started Amazon. Because this thing matters. <sighs> Just I don't know. It's so weird. I mean, pick your battles, man. That is not a hill to die on. Yeah, you've got a jillion dollars and a million things to do. I just don't. And Mackenzie Bezos, it's worth noting, has a debut novel out now that she did not publish through Amazon. I think it was from Random House. Yeah, that's right. Yep, yep. Um, she she should be paying attention to building her reputation as a writer. Her, mm. The book just came out. I've, a few galleys of it have showed up at my house and shown up, showed up. Bah, it's too early for grammar. Um, but why? Why is she spending her time doing this? You know, I think she saw the, the book. She had a glass of Pinot. It's Thursday <laughs> night and you get your dander up. Paint me a picture. I, I, I painted. That's oil on canvas right there for you. <laughs> Um, so anyway, for those of you interested in that, we, we got a good chuckle out of it. So yeah, it was, that was a good, that was a good giggle. All right. Thank you, Mackenzie. We're going to stay in tech world for a second. This is related to Amazon, but, um, it's wider about that. Um, basically, um, there's some dispute going on about whether or not e-readers should have to, um, comply with, um, to CVAA standards, which would make them more compatible for people who have print reading disabilities. Um, Basically, LCD screens, audio and video capabilities, um, assistive technologies, um, quick links to different kinds of messaging apps and audio and mics and everything that helps people who have reading and sight disabilities um, interact with information. Um, and it's kind of an interesting case because basically what people want is, you know, if I buy a Kindle and I'm not, I have trouble with sight, I want that device to obey what the laws are about making things available. And basically Amazon, Kobo, um, and Sony have gotten together to sort of fight this saying that basically these are meant only for 
print reading. It's not a communications device, which is apparently what happens. Um, this particular act is the 21st Century Communications and Video Act, which means that a communications device has to be accessible to people with disabilities. And they're suggesting that e-readers really aren't that. Um, which makes this kind of weird, like, distinction between, I mean, your Kindle can have a browser but and an email client. Does that mean it's a communications yeah, device? I think it's, it's very strange, I but think, I kind of get it at the same time. I, I sort of get it too, but I also feel like... Okay, well, Amazon Kobo and Sony joined together to create the coalition of e-reader manufacturers so that they could do this thing. Yeah. Like this is the one thing, this is the thing that's going to band together <laughs> competitors right. is not having to adapt their technology to be assistive for people with disabilities. Like this is also not a hill that I think is worth dying on, but the arguments that they make are really interesting. They're yeah. trying to, they say that e-readers are marketed to readers with one activity in mind, reading, right. and that that makes them different from phones and tablets and things that are communication devices that are intended to allow you to read, but also to do a bunch of other things. And that communication devices should have to comply, but e-readers that are unitaskers, basically, they right. do one thing and it's reading, should not have to comply. So basically the argument is like, e-readers are simple and they should stay simple yeah. and they shouldn't have to uh, to develop. Um, it's it's a weird distinction mm -hmm. to make. And but it kind of makes sense though, right? Like if you get a new Kindle Paperwhite and you have trouble reading print, like, what are you, exactly are you expecting? Does that make sense? I don't know. I, mm -hmm. Maybe I'm being a jerk. I'm not. I, it could be that I'm being a jerk. That's entirely possible. But maybe, maybe you just need to get a Kindle HD or an iPad that has all you know those things that are supposed to comply with mm -hmm. these things. Because we're not talking about you know all of the things all the way up. Well, so um, there's an economic argument to be yeah. made there for sure. Like the say the Nook, I don't know, Simple Touch. Right. Uh, we, I'll use Barnes & Noble as an example because they're not involved in, in, yeah, this, right, right. in this dispute. Good job, Barnes & Noble. Yeah, maybe they're uh, letting the other ones do their heavy lifting right, those, for them. The, the things that just function as e-readers um, that don't have you know browsers and Wi-Fi and all of the uh, you know web tech that makes them communication devices, those are significantly less expensive than a tablet is. So if you don't adapt your uh, bottom-of-the-market e-reader um, because it's just an e-reader it serves mm -hmm. that one function and that's the argument that you make then you sort of functionally discriminate against people with uh with disabilities and force them to have to spend more if they want yeah i guess that's true things. i mean and so it's really about cost i guess the the on the one side they want um the 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 suit against them wants them to make the lower cost devices more accessible, mm -hmm. and basically the reason Sony and Kobo and uh, Amazon don't want to do this is it would cost more money um, to make right. the devices, and they're already we we don't really know what the margins on these devices, but some people speculate they actually take a loss on the device cost, and they make it up in content sales, kind of the razor blade model. Mm -hmm. um, so we really don't know that. So if it costs them an extra even twenty dollars per unit for a sixty dollar or eighty dollar e-reader. Um, over millions of devices, that's that's a lot of money. Um, this also seems interesting to me to be trying to draw the distinction between what's an e-reader and what is like an e-reader plus or a tablet or a communication yeah. device because tablet ownership already outranks e-reader yep. ownership. And that that is only going to continue to grow. Um, more people owning tablets than owning, than owning and using mm -hmm. single function e-readers. So trying to carve out and defend uh, what you're doing with what is just going to be a, a, a shrinking corner of the market uh, also seems like not the best use of time and resources. Uh, the folks at, at Melville House do a pretty consistent job of uh, discussing uh, technology and Amazon and these developments with both uh, accuracy and very snarky commentary. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the piece uh, that I'm looking at here is great. We'll put that in the show notes, but it's just, there's a lot of dimensions here, but it just seems weird. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I do get it. Like the, the rallying cry of the American library association about this and digital technology is 
same book, same time, same price. They want that for all readers, mm -hmm. um, whether or not they have a disability. Um, so, I mean, I definitely understand that. I guess, I guess it's hard to square the circle of, a, can you have a single defunction device um, if that single function isn't accessible to, to everybody? Um, I'm glad I don't have to decide this. That, mm -hmm. That's what's nice. Is I, don't have to, <laughs> I don't have to make a decision about um, what has to be done here. Right. Um, I'd love to hear from people who know more about yeah. these details than we do. So if you're if you're listening and you have an, an insider perspective, shoot us an email at podcast at bookriot.com. If you are a librarian, if you have experience um, trying to get these unitasking devices to have assistive technology, or you can speak to the impact of that, I'd, we'd really be interested in hearing it. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if there are institutional buyers that buy a bunch of, say, Kindles. Um, and they buy the least expensive one because you're buying a bunch of them and that mm -hmm. crowds some people out. That seems yeah, very there, possible I mean, there to are, me. There are a lot of public libraries now that you can rent Kindles from. And yep. I know uh, a bunch of school librarians where now the like the high school library has a stable of 20 or 30 or 40 Kindles that students can take mm -hmm. out um, for, you know, for a period of time and use. Yeah. Okay. Um, Stat Corner. It's time. Stat Corner. <laughs> This one comes from our friend Kelly Jensen, mm -hmm. who um, writes for us um, sometimes, has her own website called Stacked, yes. um, and she did a huge, enormous, exhaustive, amazing um, study of the New York Times young adult bestseller list um, to try to see trying to find out a couple of things, but I think the, tell me if you if you got a different sense of it. She was trying to investigate sort of a central tenant. Uh, about publishing that we hear is that YA is dominated by um, women writers, mm -hmm. right? That, you know, YA is a women's genre. Most of the readers are teenage girls, but also, you know, all the way up um, the age um, spectrum. But it's mostly written by women. And she's like, you know, I've always felt that to be maybe a canard, but I didn't really have the data to back it up. And so, you know what, I'm going to go do some data. And boy, did she done did it. She did done did some big data. Yeah. So you want to, what's it, what's the, what's the highlight here? Where, where should we, uh, what should well, we hit them with? You know, the, the big nugget is yep. that this notion that women dominate young adult books in, in sales and in authorship is not true. Not true. Not even a little bit true. Yeah. Like 80, 20. Um, yeah, Kelly took 47 weeks worth of New York Times bestseller lists, and she explains in the post that we will link to in the show notes how she collected that data, where she um, got the YA numbers versus the middle grade numbers, and, mm -hmm. and a, a good basic rundown of how the New York Times list is compiled. But she looks at uh, the frequency of male authors versus female authors on this list, both for... Um, uh, when a male author appears at all or when a male author appears multiple times on the list or female author m multiple times on the list, like Veronica Roth for a long yeah. time had had two books on this list. Um, I learned a thing that I didn't know about these lists that the New York Times manages young adult books um, when your series is complete, they move you off of yeah. the regular bestseller list and move you onto a series bestseller list. So when Allegiant came out, it it switched everything around for mm. the women's numbers because Veronica Roth moved from being on the regular list to being on the series list. After I, and the I didn't see thing. in Kelly's post what the rash. Does anyone know the rationale for that? Uh, like, I why does that make sense? The rationale. Uh, but there are some really interesting graphs yeah. in, in this post. She also links to the full data set so you can dive in yep. and answer additional questions. But um, Here, here's, the, here's, the, here's the sentence. Mm -hmm. On average, there were seven books written by men in the top 10 of the NY, New York Times YA list and three by women. They mm -hmm. also stayed longer, those books. Right. Um, books written by women have never once never once had at least half the spaces on the top 10 list. Mm -hmm. And every single week, except for two out of 47. So for 45 yep. out of 47 weeks, men outnumbered women on the New York Times young adult list. 
Those were the weeks of March 31st and May 19th this year. And she says, before you get excited thinking that women had finally taken over, I'll report to you that they didn't take over in numbers. Mm. Uh, Those weeks showed five individual women on the list, which is still uh, a smaller than the average number of men who appeared on a weekly basis. Women dominated none of the time. Uh, Those five individual women represented a grand total of eight books on the 15 book extended list in those two weeks. Eight books, five women, 15 spots for two weeks out of 47 total. Um, 47 total weeks, that's how long the YA list has been around. There have only been two women to see the top spot, Mm -hmm. and they have held it for a combined five weeks. So just about 12% of the time um, a dude as the top spot on the, and, on the YA bestseller list. And it, interestingly, she refers to Eleanor and Park by Rainbow Rowell, which was a huge young adult book earlier this year, um, that it made its debut on this list nearly a month after the book's release, uh, but the sales were uh, were affected and its appearance on the list was affected by a review of it in the New York Times written by a male young adult writer, John Green. Hmm. So, and, and Kelly notes here that it would be virtually impossible to argue that Eleanor and Park would have made that appearance at that spot on the list hmm. without that review from a dude. So, yeah, I mean, so she's she's busting this myth that young adult writing is dominated by women um, because the whole study that she conducted is about the New York Times. It it raises the question of does this exist is this sort of an industry-wide problem or is this new york times institutional bias in the way that they collect uh yeah. data apparently like more women show up or women show up more frequently on the usa today ya bestseller lists and on the amazon mm-hmm. ya bestseller list so it also could be a problem of i mean um kelly's looking at the top 10 and it, the 15. long tail could look different mm-hmm. um the fat middle and the long tail of the bell curve could look at look maybe the the men dominate the top, but in aggregate there's more women selling books. I don't, I don't know. I'm not saying that it is or it isn't, um, but there are some limitations if we're going to do methodology corner on our good yeah. friend Kelly. I don't think there's any particular flaw with the study for what the conclusion she's drawing from it. You know, she's saying you know this is what you're seeing in the top ten, right? Um, and you can extrapolate from that as you want to, but without a full data set, you can't really. You know, we don't know. The New York Times doesn't tell us stuff. I mean, that's the other problem. Mm-hmm. There aren't numbers. Like, how close is number one and number two to each other? We're never going to... This drives me crazy. Um, <laughs> as you well know, I've talked to a length yeah, there's no, about... Yeah, there's no transparency. No like, transparency, what is it, yeah. It, you um, can... If you sold 500 copies in a week, would that bump you up one spot or two spots? Like, yeah, we, it, we It's don't well know. known that selling a handful of copies can bump you up a significant number of spots on Amazon. Right. Um, what what does it take to get that bump? And I, I'd really be interested in like what the gap is between number one and right. number two, number yep. two and number three. But I think Kelly did a really thorough job of answering the question that she was trying to answer with yep. the study. Which, is it you know, appearance of names, right? That's right. really what this is, is about. Is this bestseller, is young adult, you know, really dominated by women, especially in terms of, of bestsellers? Um, I'd be interested in seeing what this study would have looked like, like five years ago when Twilight mm. was twilighting. Um, yeah, that's interesting too, um, because it, it could be too that a lot of the you know the consistent sellers. I guess I guess Harry Potter would be over in the series now, right? Or in the children's. And children's would be over there too. Hunger Games would be over there now. All that yeah. stuff. Yeah, they would. Uh, five years ago, we would have been in the middle of Twilight yeah. and the Hunger Games. Because um, I'm guessing those books still sell so much that if you look at. I guess a difference, if we knew the data, which we're never going to, I'm just speculating, like, let's say we knew how much every title sold week in Mm -hmm. and week out. I would guess those things still sell pretty strongly. And how much that, like, what would the titles by gender sell? Like, how many copies did men sell this week versus how many copies did women sell this week? What that number would look like, too. That's just, we're never going to know it. Kelly couldn't find that out, but she did a great job with the information that she could get. Um, that stuff is really interesting. So if you go around saying or hearing people say, you know, YA is all written by women, you can say, actually, if you look at the top 10 New York Times bestselling um, YA authors, it's 80% men, and, that, and you'll be pretty accurate um, mm-hmm. week in and week out. All right. Well, it's getting to the end of 2013. It is. And here comes the deluge of year-end <laughs> awards lists, roundups, top 10s, top 100s, top 50s, top 5s, top 1s. 
Um, Publishers Weekly, they recently released their best of 2013 in October. Uh, great. Thanks a lot, They guys. did? Oh, yeah. Man, I, I missed I, you that. Were, I think you were gone. It was like the day before Halloween. I miss everything. You did. It's, uh, I never go anywhere. Um, <laughs> and now the, this is the one getting more traction right now is that Goodreads has a le- released its um, Goodreads Choice Awards long lists. So you can go and cast your vote for the best books of 2013. Um, there are one, two, three, four, 20 categories. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I don't know if each category has the same number of titles uh, eligible, um, but there's a lot. The long lists are pretty long. So, for example, mystery and thriller, there are 15. Um, I think there are long 15 lists. in each category. 15 in each one. Um, and you can go vote um, and uh, determine which one you think uh, is going to be the best. This probably the best proxy for popularity that we get these days right i think i think so goodreads has a huge member yeah. base Seven hundred twenty-seven thousand votes have already been cast everybody who has a goodreads account received notice that mm-hmm. this was open and you know it's been all over social media and of course authors who have been nominated are asking their fan bases to support them and people are talking about the books that they love and saying you know it, it made it this book made it go vote for it if you loved it too it's always interesting to me to see what makes yeah. um, what makes these lists because what readers are talking about is not always the same as mm-hmm. what you know like book media is talking about um particularly like the divide between what's high on a goodreads list and what's high on a new york times list so like the nominees for best fiction have looking at it right um, now yeah some of the the suspects that i would have uh, put on here just you know no question they've got the goldfinch by donna tart we've got 10th of december by george saunders and the lowland by jumpa lahiri um americana chimanda uh, negozi adichie mm-hmm. so so there's some big literary fiction names uh some of the big big books of the year um but also you know maybe some sleeper yep hits a constellation of vital phenomena which i've heard a lot about by anthony mara mm-hmm. um the Rosie it's, Project. We're hearing. I've been seeing a lot of people yeah, talk that's, about that's that. That's just starting to bubble up. Um, yeah. A Tale for the Time Being by Ruth Ozeki. Oh, did you the notice? What, did you notice what's not on here? Tell me what's not on here. The luminaries. Ah. The Booker wonder, Prize winning luminaries. I wonder if it's in a different category. I just noticed. Oh, that could it night, be historical fiction? Well, and night film is in the mystery and thriller uh, category. Night film by oh, Marisha Pessel. Oh, is in historical fiction. Okay. Oh, and so is Life After Life and Transatlantic and The Sun. So there's interesting questions weird, to be asked about the genre distinctions yeah. and how they do. Like I would have called Night Film, that's literary fiction that's driven by a mystery story. Oh, now we're going to get into the genre tar baby. Let's not touch that. <laughs> um, you know what I'm saying? I mean, we could do this all day. Yeah, no, yeah. it's super, uh, it's, it's confusing and yeah. everybody's definition of it is different. Like, uh you know, like Margaret Atwood's Mad Adam shows up in science fiction. Uh, that makes sense to me. Max Verity's Lexicon oh. shows up in science fiction, okay. which maybe doesn't make as much sense. Yeah, I'm uh, not to so me, sure about as that a reader, I'm not sure I would have put it there. Like, um, a, a interesting diversity of authors within each of these categories, yep. too, and in how well the books seem to fit maybe the stereotypical notion of what the definition of those genres. If someone's looking for is. a data project. And you want to go through the authors and break it down by by gender and nationality mm-hmm. and race and ethnicity. I would look at that chart. I would look at it so hard. Yeah, and they've like they have young adult fiction, and then they also have young adult you know, fantasy. Well, they have fantasy um, and paranormal fantasy. And so, where that divide occurs, yeah. would only be, one romance category. I thought that was interesting. That is interesting. Like you can have regular YA versus YA fantasy, but romance, which has a bajillion subgenres, yeah. uh, just gets one category. That's that's really interesting to and me. Nonfiction, too. I guess, gets history, biography, There's, memoir, autobiography, and nonfiction. And then, right. And I guess There's food that. and cookbooks could be. That's it's probably separate. nonfiction. Too. And then humor is its own category, and that includes like humorous memoirs, but also humorous children's books. It's mm-hmm. what's in graphic novels and comics? Is saga? Oh yeah, I looked, and so is um, Iron. Uh, excuse me, um, Hawkeye. My life is a weapon. My two. F- I got to save that for the gift show. I, I, I said too much. <laughs> Speaking of the gift show, since we're talking about yeah. it, we're going to do a gift show the week of uh, Thanksgiving to help you with your uh, Black Friday and Cyber Monday 
shopping. So if you have a tough customer to shop for, mm-hmm. somebody that you want to buy books for this holiday season or for yourself, yeah, and you just tell don't us about know yourself and we'll what try to, to do. Shoot us an email, podcast at bookriot.com. Ask us your holiday shopping question. Uh, Jeff and I are going to each share some of what Jeff calls the Swiss Army book recommendations, right. you know, stuff you can buy for just about anyone on your list. But we also want to take some targeted questions and help you nail down those people that are hard to shop for. Yep. All right. So this is a Goodreads Choice nominees. Go take a look at that. You know, you could do worse than browsing that to get some ideas for stuff. To yeah, read. for sure. Heck of a heck of a good job. All right. Let's jump ahead to the sponsor because we've been talking for a while. We have. This is you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I just, just sitting here waiting. Sorry. I was like, what? Let's do these. <laughs> Jeff, take it away. <laughs> Uh, th- this is when we all realized that I really was awake way past yeah, my bedtime last, last night. So uh, new sponsor uh, this week is Fangasm Supernatural Fangirls by Katherine Larson. Uh, this is a nonfiction sort of a memoir slash investigative journalism bit. Um, Larson is one of two college professors. That, uh, the book is about her and her friend. Uh, they are, you know, your uh, sort of stereotypical buttoned up professional uh, college professor women, but they fell in love with the show. Supernatural, which was on several years ago and very, very popular. And they fell like deep into Supernatural fandom. They scoured the internet for stories and pictures of the actors. They attended conventions. They even secretly wrote Supernatural fan fiction. And as they were falling into this and just sort of like letting themselves be completely consumed by their obsession with the show, um, they were asking themselves whether it was okay to be that kind of fan, sort of that that big of a fan and that passionate of a fan, I guess. Like, is, is it okay for, for grown women with careers and kids to also be super obsessed with mm. a show that they're watching and writing fan fiction and scouring the internet and going to conventions? And so they, they wanted to sort of figure out, like, is this normal or are we the freaks that people are telling us that we are sometimes? So they, they went to a bunch of conventions, they talked to a lot of fans, and they discovered that most fans uh, were very much like themselves. They were most fans of Supernatural. Uh, they were capable women who were were looking for something um, that engaged both their brains and their libidos. Oh, yeah. mm, okay. Hey there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so Fangasm pulls back the curtain on the secret world of, um, of fans, but also of the famous people who are the object of this adoration. And it sort of goes behind the scenes to look at how much the cast and crew knew about what the fans were up Mm. to and sort of like how uh, wildly developed the fandom had become. Uh, And the, the tag here is anyone who's been tempted to throw off the constraints of respectability and indulge a secret passion or hit the road with a best friend will want to come (laughs) along. Um, I'm interested in this story. I've never seen an episode of supernatural, but I love this notion of people just nerding out on the things they want to nerd out on. Yeah. Uh, And the book sounds, sounds great. It's fangasm again by Catherine Larson. Thanks for sponsoring the show. Check it out. Let us know if you, uh, if you read it. Good title. Uh, Yeah, that's a good one. Good title. Okay. Okay. We've Uh, got, let's go. Let's do a little more prize and end of year stuff. Just real quick. Okay. Before we go to the end. So our own Ed McCracken, uh, this week published an interview on our own site, the lovely book, com, uh, where he interviewed, um, one of the one of this year's Booker Prize judges, mm-hmm. um, and I cannot think of the guy's name right now. So let me look it up. Stuart Kelly. Stuart Kelly, who, if you did a central casting call for um, uh, English um, literary judges, you'd get someone who looks a lot like Stuart Kelly. Like, I would. Think. You know, the dude's jacket has elbow patches. He does, and he's got a little vest, and he's got some little round glasses, and he's very eloquent and um, restrained. Um, and I. The reason I'm bringing this up, it's an interesting interview anyway, but there's one particular thing I thought, well, that I was interested in. And so this is our show, so we get to talk about what we're interested in. That's how this works. That's how this works. Um, and he said something that I had never thought about before, and I know very little about how a lot of these um, big literary prizes are put together. But for this one, basically they had 151 entries, um, and about 50 of those were serious contenders for the long list. And so all the judges read all 50 of those. And then they windowed them down to another smaller group. They read everything again to get the finalists. They read everything again to get the winner. That's a lot of reading. It's a lot of reading. It's a lot of reading, period, but a lot of rereading. And also, since the Luminaries won, that's 800 pages. That's 2,400 pages of Luminaries reading um, that each of those judges did. And he said something that makes a lot of sense to me, that, you know, 
this kind of reading tends to bias the award against things that don't stand up to multiple readings. Mm-hmm. Whether or not you think that's a good feature for an award to recognize, I'm not sure that it is or it isn't, um, rereadability. But, for example, he, he, he um, called out mysteries as historically not really holding up to rereadings because once you know what's going on, mm. the narrative pull to find out what's going on dissipates. The second reading definitely. And by the third reading, what are you really getting out of it, right? Mm -hmm. So that kind of makes some sense to me and maybe makes some sense of the kind of um, books that tend to win the booker, which the sentences are beautiful. They're complicated. um, They tend to have several different kinds of thematic elements, sometimes intention, sometimes not. Mm -hmm. But those kinds of things that do tend to, to, to hold up to rereading. Um, so I thought that was that was pretty revealing, and I, yeah. I thought it was very uh, helpful way of thinking about the prize. I thought it was also interesting that he noted that those the rereadings help weed out books that only seemed uh, good at the time because of what else they had been reading. Yeah, so he notes like sometimes you read something that seems great, but it's just because the last thing that you read was a turkey. That's right. You read three turkeys uh, in a row, and you get right. a little roasted chicken. And you're like, oh my god. Right. And so then you go the next in the next round, the thing that was the roasted chicken appears. You you can see it with a clearer eyes yeah. that um, I only really loved this in that previous round because the three things prior to it were not so great. And now that I'm reading it up against other things that really are great, you can you can see that there's real value, I think, to weeding out something that way. But man, good job, Booker Prize winners for that yeah. level of dedication and um, in, in dream fantasy jobs for all of you out there. Basically, oh, these no guys kidding. sit around, read all year. Get paid to yeah. do it. They like basically get up at eight and uh, read all day. Yeah, he said he treats it like a job. He starts reading it. He starts at eight a.m. and he finishes at seven p.m. Uh, but that he would do it, you know, beyond that if mm-hmm. he if he could, uh, I guess, and maintain a family life as well, right. a, a personal life of any variety. Uh, you got to leave your house sometime. Yep. Uh, but really, a, an interesting interview. And now I want to know if the readers for like the National Book Award and the Pulitzer and that sort of thing are also doing rereadings, or is this unique to the culture of the Booker? Well, the Pulitzer, you know, what they do is they have a small panel that then submits uh, finalists and I think their recommended winner to the full Pulitzer board, who are not all literary judges. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a different, you know, famously in the was it last year where there was no award given. Right. Um, there was a disconnect between what the board wanted and what the full panel wanted or didn't want. Um, and so I, I assume there's different kinds of biases built into those sorts of situations. Mm-hmm. I don't I think the National Book Award is just three people and they choose one. <laughs> um, yeah. But I don't know if they do multiple rounds or anything like that at all. all right. So a nice uh, insight into a world we're interested in, but know very little about, uh, mm-hmm. generally speaking. You want to do Hero of the Week, and then we'll do some new books and call yep. it a day? Hero of the Week. So, this was the best email that I have gotten Yay. in a while. A riot reader named Jeff Montgomery wrote a song about bookish girls, and like how they are delightful, and a bookish girl is just the best thing, and it's just very sweet. Uh, he <laughs> he sent it to us last week. Uh, I have to confess that when people send us random things, sometimes I'm like, oh my god, what is this going to be? <laughs> <laughs> I was nervous. Like, what if it's what if it's pervy or sexist mm-hmm. or something? Um, I don't want to objectify bookish women, but I am happy to report that Jeff Montgomery just is a bookish dude, and he enjoys a bookish lady, and it's sort of about. And you know, how wonderful it is when you find someone who's as nerdy as you are, yeah. really. Uh, it's a sweet song. We've we've shared it on Facebook and Twitter. We'll drop the SoundCloud link to it in the show notes. But Jeff Montgomery, for sure, our literary hero of the week. Uh, good job, Jeff Montgomery. Thanks, Jeff, for uh, being a And thank a you for sending us. that to us, for knowing that Book Riot was the place where you can send your <laughs> cute, nerdy song about bookish girls and that we would enjoy it. Uh, if you do cool things like this, listeners, we want to know about them. Please, please do let us know. We definitely uh, do. Good books out this week. Yeah. It's you weird. know, I, I saw a little, I saw a little um, preview of how much you liked this first one. <sighs> love this book so much. Uh, The Isle of Youth by Laura Vandenberg. It's a collection of short stories. Uh, This is Laura Vandenberg's first book with a big press. She had a previous collection of short stories that's in my like top maybe five short story collections ever called What the World Will Look Like When All the Water Leaves Us. Uh, But these are in the Isle of Youth. Uh, This is out from FSG this week. Uh, These are stories about women who 
are facing that like vast distance between the lives that they thought they were going to have and the lives that they've ended up with. Uh, not happy stories, but very compelling. Uh, a little, there's some, there's some weird elements, but not like Karen Russell level of weird. Uh, and her sentences are just so sharp. Um, I think, I think that if pressed, I would put Laura Vandenberg above Karen Russell as the best female short story writer Mm. today. Really amazing. I want everyone to know about her and to read her books. Um, She's also got a chat book out called There Will Be No More Good Nights Without Good Nights, where the stories are often like one or two pages long. I don't think there's anything in that collection that's more than five pages. And what what this woman can do with a very small number of words to convey a very great amount of information about her characters lives and their Mm. emotions and what they're experiencing. It's just really remarkable. I I'm super gushy about her. I know. I I just love this book. I've been looking forward to, to this book for for like all year long and it's finally (laughs) out and now you can read it too. It's again, it's called the Isle of youth. If you love short stories, or I think even if you're sort of on the fence about short stories and you're trying to figure out like what a good short story is, uh, you couldn't do much better than to start with Laura Vandenberg and to, to be able to experience what that short story form can really be. She's just a master. Um, and she's pretty young. I want her to keep going. Like if this is the beginning, you know, like she's in her thirties, if this is the beginning of her career, then I'm really excited about what we're going to get to read from her in the next, hopefully many decades. Um, she's quickly become one of my favorites. Uh, and now we've got some crowd favorites, like talk about books for readers. Uh, have a sham by Ronald frame is a shifted perspective narrative that takes uh you know miss havisham from great expectations who is the famously the the jilted bride who's living in her old house but it shows us her early life yeah one of the more iconic secondary characters in all literature right i mean right this is i think this is on par with uh what wide sargasso c does for Mm -hmm. jane eyre um i have not read this yet by all accounts a really terrific take, but fascinating to get a look at the younger Havisham uh, when she's falling in love with the man who will eventually leave her. Yeah, that's. I'm going to read this at some point. It might not be anytime soon, but I'm going to read this at some point. I love yeah, that one. Great expectations. Um, I like the setup here. I read the first few pages of a sample, and that was enough to get me uh, interested. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, and this one, if you loved the 13th tale by Diane Setterfield, which came out several years ago and is a, sort of a classic book lovers. Book, I missed that you one be... completely. Can you say something about the 13th tale? Did you read it? I did a, a while ago. So okay. it's been, I don't remember all of the details, yeah, yeah. but a, a, a young woman gets hired by a, like a mysterious older woman that she doesn't know to help figure something out about this woman's family. There's touches of Jane Eyre in it. Like she's got, mm. a, I think the older woman has a sister that she's hiding. Um, but the young woman goes and spends her days in this family's giant library. And there are these delicious nuggets about loving books and like the uh, glow, hmm. you know, the, the candlelight glow in the library. Reminds me of some just... other setup. Oh, um, uh, girl with the dragon tattoos. She gets hired to come. They get hired to come to this big <laughs> family estate yeah, and figure something out. Like yeah. A similar idea. And then everything is, I different. love that setup. I love that. <laughs> I love that setup, by the way, there's something yeah. really great about that. Yeah. It's a really compelling setup. There are shades of Jane Eyre in the story. It's it, it, if you haven't read the 13th tale and you're looking for something that's cozy and just a little bit dark, um, that will, that will give you immense satisfaction to underline sentences about what it is to love books that you, uh, the 13th tale is great. Uh, and Diane Setterfield's new novel is out this week at long last. It's called Bellman and Black. Uh, caught up in a moment of boyhood competition, William Bellman recklessly aims his slingshot at a rock resting on a branch, killing the bird instantly. It's a small but cruel act, and it is soon forgotten. Uh, and by the time he's grown, he seems to put the whole incident behind him. Uh, it was as if he never killed the thing at all, but rocks don't forget. Oh, sorry, rooks. Rooks don't oh, rooks. forget? Rooks, yeah, that's rooks. different than a rock. I'm a slingshot. Told. Oh, sorry. He aims a slingshot at a rook resting on a branch. I was going to uh, say, you killed the rock. That's <laughs> weird. <laughs> uh, and years later, a stranger mysteriously enters his life and mm. his fortune begins to turn. And these terrible and unforeseen consequences of his past take root. The chickens come home to roost. No, they do. 
They do. So Diane Setterfield also likes this setup of a mysterious yeah. stranger changing someone's life unexpectedly. Uh, some of our, our Book Riot contributors are reading it right now. I'm hearing good things. Uh, I know a lot of readers will be excited by the news that Diane Setterfield finally has a new novel out. That's a nice trio. So that's I Love Youth by Laura Vandenberg, Havisham mm-hmm. by Ronald Frame, and Bellman and Black by Diane Setterfield. Good picks. <laughs> That is the week in books, my friend. There it is. Um, so if you want to get in touch with us, we're at podcastatbookriot.com. You can find us writing and doing stuff on bookriot.com and on Twitter at bookriot. If you have, we're, we're going to record the gift show in about 10 days or so. So you've got a few days, but not too long to send us email suggestions. We need some, we need some stuff. So we're not just talking about books we like, which is fun, but we want to help some people out if we can. Um, so at podcast at bookriot.com. Tell us what you're looking for, what you're interested in. Um, you can rate the show on iTunes. We're at 95 ratings right now, just five away from 100. After that, we'll shut up for a while, maybe like a week or so, about <laughs> iTunes reviews. Uh, let's see, what else can we tell? Oh, Quarterly. Should we talk about Quarterly for just one quick hot minute? Yeah, you can go to quarterly.co slash products and subscribe to Book Riot's Quarterly Box. For 50 bucks a quarter, we will send you a box of books and awesome bookish goodies, stuff that we love, that we've handpicked because we think it's awesome. And you'll think it's awesome, too. Uh, everything in the box will have a, a retail value that totals over $50. So you're going to get your money's worth, but also you'll be getting some extras. Like uh, the book that we've chosen is a secret for this first box, but we have a bunch of handwritten notes from the author that will be inserted into the book that give you uh, really cool insights into what, what this author was thinking about um, and sort of the background yep. of pieces in this book. So you can expect those, those kinds of things. And if you like our book fetish series, on the site, you'll enjoy uh, the other kinds of items that that show up. That's quarterly.co uh, slash products, and the subscription period for this one is open through November 29th. But we are we are pretty quickly rolling towards selling out. Mm. Uh, so if this sounds interesting to you, do it sooner rather than later. Make a good oh, gift too. It would. Uh, we also have a short survey uh, that will be included in the show notes that uh, if you would take a couple of minutes, it will just tell us a little bit more about who's listening to the show and it'll help us right. to continue securing great sponsors uh, that are relevant to you, the Book Riot listeners, uh, stuff like Swoon Reads and like Fangasm. So that'll be in the show notes and you can find these show notes and all of the past show notes at bookriot.com slash podcast. All right, guys. Thank you so much for listening. We will talk to you next week. Have a good one.